Thank you for the invitation to come and share God's Word. I bring you greetings from uh, Lismore Bible Church. Uh, in January, we'll be celebrating our 10th anniversary. So uh, time has certainly gone by very quickly. I'm going to bring a sermon this evening on the subject of prayer. And I want us to think about it in the context of the world in which we are living. I'm sure it's been mentioned many times from this pulpit, and I'm sure it's been a topic of many conversations, uh, that our society seems to be turning against the Christian worldview and against Christian morality. We're concerned about this. We're concerned for our children, especially we suspect that it's going to be harder for them to live out their Christian faith than it has been for us. We're concerned about the ability of Christian schools and other Christian institutions to continue to affirm and teach the biblical view of gender, sexuality and marriage. We're concerned about what happens to those who seek to bring the biblical perspective into the public square. This perspective is increasingly judged to be intolerant, bigoted, hateful and harmful. Something really seemed to change when our country, by a significant majority, indicated its preference for same-sex marriage, and our parliament followed suit and changed the Marriage Act. Or maybe the change just all of a sudden became more apparent. We finally realised that the horse had indeed bolted. Now We're aware of what's happening. Uh, we're starting to feel the pressure, or at least we can see what's coming. And it's with this in mind taking the times in which we're living for our context, I want us to think about prayer. And I want to do so by going to a much-loved story in our Old Testament. Please, if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. Daniel chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counsellors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree 
But whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee. O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he laboured till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establish may be changed. Then the king commanded and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and to shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions had the mastery of them, and break all their bones in pieces, or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text of Scripture, a text that many of us have known since we were little children. Lord, I pray that although it is familiar, it would come to us this evening with fresh vigour, fresh power. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take the truths in this passage and press them firmly upon our hearts. Oh, please help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to explain all of the details of this story this evening. I'm not going to get into a historical or cultural background. Most of you probably have a good understanding of that already. I'm going to proceed by asking and answering four questions. And God willing, that will bring us to the message uh, he has for us tonight. And so here we go. Question number one. Why were the princes out to get Daniel? Why were the princes out to get Daniel? When it came to the administration of the Persian Empire, Daniel was given the most important position. He was the number one civil servant in the kingdom, uh, the secretary of the department of the prime minister and cabinet, if we're looking for a modern equivalent, but probably with even greater authority. Or perhaps he was more like the treasurer is to the prime minister. He was the first of three presidents, three high officials who were over 120 princes. Perhaps these princes were responsible for different geographical areas, or maybe they were responsible for different aspects of public administration. Some looked after the tax system, others looked after the roads, and so on. I'm sure you can go and study the organisation of the Persian Empire if you want to get right into the details. What's clear from the text is that the presidents and the princes didn't like Daniel. Verse 4, then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. This expression, to find occasion, carries the idea of trying to find something to accuse Daniel of. Something that would diminish him in the eyes of the king. Something that would lead to him losing his position. Uh, an example of maladministration or corruption. They wanted to bring Daniel down. And the obvious question is, why? From what we're told up to this point in the book, Daniel seems to be a good guy. Uh, Daniel seems to be a very honourable man. Why were these other leaders set against him? Was it jealousy? The text tells us that he was preferred above the presidents and princes. King Darius wanted to set him over all the kingdom. Was this just politics? And we know that politics is permeated with envy and ambition. Unfortunately, our country has a reputation for this. Uh, we've seen prime ministers torn down by their own Parties by those who wanted power and position for themselves. Was that the case here? No, Daniel had what these men wanted. They coveted the king's favour. They coveted that higher office. I think jealousy was certainly a factor. Was it because Daniel was incorruptible? 
Perhaps many of these princes and maybe even the other two presidents were not honest. Uh, Perhaps they used their position to feather their own nests. They developed ways of siphoning off money and resources that rightfully belonged to the state. And Daniel would have no part in it, no part in their schemes. The text says there was no error or fault in him and in any of his work. Maybe Daniel had even exposed some of their corruption and that's why they wanted to bring him down. Jealousy? Yes. Daniel's refusal to participate in any form of corruption? Perhaps. But I think the primary driver of these men's animosity was the fact that Daniel was different. And noticeably so. Daniel wasn't Persian. Daniel wasn't a Mede. He wasn't a Babylonian. Daniel was a Jew and a devout Jew. In these men's minds, why should an outsider, why should someone who didn't worship their gods, who didn't live the way that they did, why should he be preferred? Why should he be the highest official in all the kingdom? There are two reasons why I think anti-Semitism was motivating these men. First of all, notice that there was unanimity among the group of leaders. Uh, In verse 4 it says, then the presidents and the princes. And again in verse 6, then these presidents and princes. We don't know if this was all 120 of them, but it was a large enough group for them to gain the ear of the king. When they came to Darius, he listened. Most, if not all of them, were in on this. And I'm sure they didn't all have some personal history with Daniel that had upset them. There had to be something about Daniel that all of them didn't like. And the obvious thing was his ethnicity and his religion. I can imagine how the conversations went. It's just not right. We're Persians. We worship Ahura Mazda. This Jewish man shouldn't be over us. He shouldn't have all of that authority. He doesn't come to our parties. He doesn't go to the temple. He's not one of us. His people came here as slaves, didn't they? I mean, it's an outrage that he's so prominent. The second reason why I think this was behind these men's hatred is because of what they said after Daniel was discovered breaking the king's decree. Look at verse 13. Then answered they and said before the king that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee. They made a point of pointing out Daniel's ethnicity. They could have just described Daniel's crime, but they didn't. They had to remind the king that he was a Jew. And I think this reveals their motives. Daniel was different. And that's why the princes were out to get him. And I won't belabor the point, but I suspect you can see the parallel to the situation we find ourselves in as those who follow Christ. Now, why is our society turning against us and and what we believe and how we want to live? It's because we're different. Like Daniel in Babylon, we march to the beat of a different drum. We serve a different master. We worship a different God. 
the one true and living God. We belong to another kingdom and the world doesn't like it. And to go a little deeper, the world doesn't like it because just by faithfully and quietly following the Lord Jesus, by by being true to who we are, we shine a light onto their way of life. And that's uncomfortable for them. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Everyone wants to be accepted in their choices and affirmed and celebrated and we don't do that. We we can't do that and at the same time be faithful to our Saviour. Question number one, why were the princes out to get Daniel? Question number two, what did the princes manage to achieve? Let's reread some verses. Look please at verse 5 and following. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counsellors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute. And to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. I imagine this proposal the princes brought to the king played to his vanity. I've not studied this out, but it wasn't uncommon for kings in the ancient world to consider themselves to be in some sense divine or to have special access to the gods. And if that's how Darius thought of himself, what a good idea this was. What a boost for his ego. For 30 days, everyone has to pray to me. This would serve to exalt the king even more. Or perhaps there was a political strategy at play. Now, wouldn't it be good for the empire? Wouldn't it be unifying if all your subjects for 30 days had to stop praying to their native gods, had to stop going to their local temples and had to pray to you? If you've studied history, ancient or modern, you'll know that dictators often sought to establish and grow their power by making themselves the object of national devotion. In Germany in the 1930s, the Nazis sought to bind the people together by forging an emotional and spiritual commitment to the person of the Fuhrer. He was more than just a political leader. He embodied the nation state and all it stood for. The Persian Empire was vast and diverse. and So what a way to bring people together by having them all focus on the king. Maybe that was the pitch these men made. But whatever the case, the princes managed to convince the king and he signed the decree into law. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment. The king made it a law that no one was permitted to pray to any man or God except himself. The expression, ask a petition, is a reference 
to prayer. This is a large part of what praying involves. For example, there are seven petitions, seven requests in the Lord's Prayer. This wasn't very tolerant, was it? This decree completely took away religious freedom as we understand it. Uh, This would be like saying that Christians can't go to church, Jews can't go to synagogue, Muslims can't go to the mosque, Buddhists can't go to the temple and so on. You all have to stay home and if you do want to practice any kind of religion, well, you can get together and pray to Queen Elizabeth. That's a rather absurd analogy. So how about this one? This decree was like the situation today, right now, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Only one religion is permitted. There are no church buildings, no synagogues, no temples, nothing. If you're caught practicing a religion other than Islam, if you're a foreigner, you'll be kicked out. If you're a local, you'll be imprisoned or maybe even executed. There is no religious liberty at all in Saudi Arabia or in North Korea or in a number of other countries. This was the situation the king's decree brought about in the province of Babylon and maybe across the whole Persian Empire. This was the situation Daniel was facing. His religious liberty was completely gone. It was illegal even to quietly pray to the Lord in his own residence. Now again, let's, let's connect this to our experience. And we're not here yet, are we? Uh, we're not where Daniel found himself in this chapter and we might never be in our lifetimes. As I said earlier, uh, maybe we can see some restrictions coming on our ability to publicly express our beliefs. Perhaps Christian institutions like schools and colleges might be forced to conform to certain beliefs about gender and sexuality or else close their doors. But even that's a fair way off, given that our governments are actually giving hundreds of millions of dollars to Christian schools to keep them open. (laughs) But yes, we are concerned about religious freedom. And I think we can identify with Daniel a little bit, to a small degree. And that brings us nicely to the next question I want us to think about. Now, why were the princes out to get Daniel? What did the princes manage to achieve? Question number three, what did Daniel do? Before I answer that, I want to mention a couple of things he didn't do. Now, we have to be careful when it comes to arguments from silence. We have to be careful not to read things into the text of Scripture that aren't there. But even so, I think it's worth pointing these things out. Uh, First of all, Daniel didn't freak out. Daniel didn't freak out. There there is no evidence whatsoever that he panicked. Oh no, my freedom to worship the Lord has been taken away. The freedom to practice my faith is gone. What am I going to do? It's a total disaster. We don't see that. I'm sure Daniel was concerned. I'm sure he was upset and perhaps even a bit afraid. He was human after all, but he doesn't seem to have lost his equanimity. He wasn't suddenly in a spin. He wasn't overtaken by anxiety. Daniel didn't panic. 
And then secondly, he, he didn't respond by immediately going to his Jewish friends to organise some kind of protest or resistance to this decree. Now maybe that was something he, he thought about doing and maybe he would have. Maybe Daniel would have got together with some of the other Jewish people who worked in the king's court and sought an audience with the king to see if there was a compromise that could be worked out. There would have been nothing wrong with any of that, just as there isn't today. If Christians want to get organised and take advantage of the opportunities that are available to them to try to change bad laws or to stop bad laws from being made, that's fine. That's a, a good thing to do. But Daniel's first response was not to go down that track. So what did he do? And look again at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and started working on a manifesto to rouse the Jews to resist the king's decree. <laughs> no. <laughs> he went into his house and descended into a pit of utter despair and contemplated running away beyond the borders of the empire. Well, no, he didn't do that either. He went into his house, his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God, as he did aforetime. This is all the Bible tells us. Now maybe Daniel did other things, but the Holy Spirit in his infinite wisdom only recorded this. This is all the Lord wanted us to know. Daniel's religious freedom was completely stripped away and it was unjust and it was wicked. With the stroke of a pen, Daniel's life became incredibly difficult and his response was to pray, as he always did. And that brings us to the fourth and final question. What happened? What happened? We know, don't we? We've known since we were little children in Sunday school. The king was forced to abide by the law he had made and he ordered that Daniel be punished for breaking the decree. Interestingly, the king was sure that Daniel's God would deliver him. That says something about Daniel's testimony, doesn't it? This is an amazing thing to hear from the lips of a pagan king. Verse 16, Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel, and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. Now maybe that was just a, just a nice thing to say to cheer Daniel up. But maybe not. Maybe the king really believed this because he'd come to learn some things about Daniel's God from the way that Daniel had lived before him. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and he was delivered. Those lions didn't hurt him at all. Uh, that's because God sent an angel to shut their mouths and I, I wonder how that happened. Uh, I wonder what that looked like. You know, those lions just wanted to bite him, but they, no, they couldn't. I don't know. Your imaginations can, can have some fun with that. The next day, the king found Daniel alive and had him taken out of the den. And then he turned his attention to the men who convinced him to sign the decree. He, he realized what they'd been up to. And he dealt with them swiftly and severely. Those 
lions eventually got their dinner. That's what happened. But brothers and sisters, that wasn't the main thing. Daniel being delivered from the lion's den is not the big story in this chapter. The big story is what we read in verses 25 through 27. Perhaps we've never fully appreciated the significance of what we have recorded in these verses. This was a very big deal. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Think about it. The most powerful man in the kingdom. Perhaps the most powerful man in the world at that time told all his subjects, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, that the God of Daniel was the living God. The God the Jewish people worshipped, Yahweh, the Lord, he is the living God. That was the message. What a proclamation of truth. What a testimony to who God is. We, we, we have some incredible theology in this decree. It's all true. The God of Daniel is an everlasting king of an everlasting kingdom. This decree would probably have been read or posted in the public squares of cities and towns across a vast expanse in dozens of languages. And not only did the king tell his subjects that the God of Daniel was the living God but that he was to be revered. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. That's remarkable. How many people heard for the very first time about the one true and living God via this decree? How many were prompted to learn more about this God? How many were led to the truth? What really happened in this story was that the name of the Lord was lifted up. It was made known throughout the world. The Lord was seen for who he really is. The knowledge of the Lord was spread across borders and cultures in an extraordinary way. We think Daniel making it out of the lion's den alive is a great story, and it is. But this blows it out of the water. Here was a pagan king evangelizing his subjects, pointing them to the one true and living God. As I was thinking about Daniel's experience, it occurred to me that there have been many others in history who were thrown to the lions because of their faith because they were different, because they confessed Christ as Lord and no one else. They wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar or to any other so-called God. And they prayed too, just like Daniel did. But God didn't intervene. And they perished. They died as entertainment 
They died in amphitheatres and coliseums as the pagans roared and cheered. But you know, the same thing happened. The same thing happened. In Daniel's case, the name of the Lord was uplifted. It was put on vivid display. And so it was when those nameless martyrs were torn apart. Their testimony in death was just as powerful as Daniel's was in life, so much so that over time their witness changed the course of the greatest empire the world had known. The Caesars who used to order the persecution of Christians eventually professed to be Christians. Idol temples were turned into churches. Now, this is a whole other subject for another day, but, but the point is, the name of the Lord was exalted when the lions did their awful work on the bodies of those precious saints and will really only know the extent of their impact when we get to heaven. How many will be there because of the witness of those who were persecuted to death? I suspect there will be a multitude. Daniel was delivered Many others died, but in both cases, Christ was magnified. People heard of him. They saw him. They were drawn to him. So what's the message in all of this for us this evening? What's the application for our Christian lives? Well, it's very simple. What did Daniel do when his religious liberty was completely taken away. What was the first thing he did? The, the only thing we're told he did, he prayed. And that's what we need to do. That's what God's people have always done. Uh, look at the book of Acts. What are those very first Christians doing all the time? They're praying. In Acts chapter 12, when the heat was turned right up, when James was beheaded and Peter was imprisoned, what was the Jerusalem church doing? The brothers and sisters were gathered together in a house and they were praying. Now certainly our situation is nowhere near as challenging as it was for Daniel or for the church as we see it in the pages of the New Testament, but prayer is just as needful. Prayer is how we respond as the darkness falls. It's one of the chief weapons by which we wage war against the evil that is coming against us. Now it's not fashionable. It's not as exciting as other things we can do. It's not always convenient or easy. It takes commitment. It takes time. But it's indispensable. Without it, we're not going to be effective at all in our homes, in our workplaces, in our ministries, and in our society. A prayerless Christian is weak and anxious and easily overcome by temptation and persecution. And the same is true of a prayerless church. It's weak. It struggles to fulfill its purpose. There's usually just as much friction as there is true fellowship. And its light barely shines. Watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. Jesus said that. 
Following his lead, by the inspiration of his spirit, his apostles would go on to say to us things like this, The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Pray without ceasing. And then there are the words that James penned. A Christian who was forged in the fire of terrible persecution, a man who died a terrible death for his faith, he wrote this, you know it, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There are many good things we can do as Christians as our society turns against us and against what we believe. And I would encourage you to take opportunities if you have them. Be as active as you can be. Be as evangelistic as you can be. But whatever you do, don't forget to pray. In fact, do more than that. Make prayer a priority. Commit yourself to it. Make prayer a priority like it was for Daniel. Like it was for the apostles. Like it was for those first Christians who faced such hardship. Make it a priority like it was for our Lord Jesus Christ. The name of the Lord will be lifted up high by this church. The light will shine brightly in the darkness. People will see the beauty of Christ and his gospel and be drawn to him. If you're serious about this matter of prayer, may God help us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word as it's come to us tonight. We thank you for the testimony of Daniel. Uh, when we look at his example, uh, many of us uh, feel very weak and feel like we fall short and feel like we could, we could never be like him. But Lord, you know he did something very simple. He just prayed. And we can all do that. Please help us, Lord. We, we need you. We need you as darkness falls in our world. We want our light to shine brightly. We want to make a difference for you. Please help us. We love you. We thank you for our time of worship. We thank you for the songs we've been able to sing. We thank you for our prayers. We thank you for the opportunity to give. We thank you for your word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 220 is our final...